Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here by your grace. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Well, first, Father, thank you for setting your love upon us, setting your love upon us and giving us over to the son. Thank you, Holy. Thank you, Jesus, for for dying, for coming and, and living for us and dying for us and rising for our justification. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying that redemption to each and every one of your elect. I pray for this service. I pray for this sermon. I pray, Lord, that your sheep will be encouraged this morning, that your sheep, Lord, will will remember what it means for you to say that you love them. That, Lord, maybe they have come in this morning not really unsure of of the love that you have for them. Lord, I hope by the end of this sermon, you will reassure them that your love for them goes way beyond our depths. Holy Spirit, be with us all. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, It's been famously said that patience is a virtue. That patience is a virtue. The, The ability to wait for something without getting angry without losing hope, is a mark that we all miss at times. I, for one, can raise my hand that I, uh, every single day, show my impatience. But why do we show such impatience? Because we are impatient people. We are sinners. The famous philosopher Aristotle once said, Patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. You might kind of relate to that. Waiting, as simple as that word may sound, as simple as it is to say, waiting, as simple as it sounds to do, is in fact one of the most difficult things to do. Women wait their entire lives for Mr. Perfect to come along. Uh, Teenagers wait till they're 18 so they can have that quote-unquote freedom. Sports fans wait for that glorious season when their team will will finally win the championship. Patience can be bitter, especially when a wonderful promise is attached to the very thing that you are being patient towards. When we know that something grand is going to come our way, if we just wait, our patience levels can, can only last for so long. It's, and it's in those times when we have to wait too long, the very thing that we are waiting for starts to lose a little bit of its glory. When we are forced to wait too long, you might question if you're just waiting in vain. But you also question the person who promised you such great things. I can remember, uh, if I can take an experience of mine, my fiancé. For so long, I would have been telling her that we're going to get married, we're going to get married. And I waited a whole year, and it almost seemed like in her mind that maybe that ring is never going to come. Where, I mean, we're talking about marriage, but, but you're, not, you're not putting a ring before, you're not putting a ring in front of me. You, you haven't put a ring on it yet. That's, that's what she might be thinking. So in her mind, maybe the ring, the ring starts to lose a little bit of its glory, and marriage no longer is a thing that she might want. I, I want it now, but you are... You are telling me I have to wait. Will the very thing that I'm waiting for ever come to pass? As we come to the prophecy of Malachi, 
we see how impatience can turn a people cold to themselves and even to God. As we come to the prophecy of Malachi, we see how impatience can turn a people cold to themselves and even to God. Now, this is the context of the book of Malachi. The background of the book of Malachi, the dating of the book of Malachi is up for much debate. However, we do know that the book of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi, might have been written around the 5th century B.C. The prophet Malachi is unknown to us. We don't know who Malachi was. Uh, John Calvin thought that Malachi might have been Ezra. Uh, The prophet Malachi is quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and Paul. The name Malachi means my messenger. But unlike the book of uh, Jonah or Jeremiah, Malachi has little to do with the book itself. If you, if you remember when we were going through Jonah, Jonah, Jonah's experience is the prophecy, right? The book of Jonah is about a person named Jonah and God's dealing with Jonah, right? That's not the case in Malachi. Malachi is not about a, is not a, is not a book about a person named Malachi. It's about God. Very much how like Jonah was. Malachi, as mysterious as he may be, and, and when people think about Malachi, we think of Malachi, he, he might have just been a shadow. But theologically speaking, Malachi was really a mouthpiece. Malachi spoke on the behalf of God, and it's really God doing the speaking. Uh, Malachi, as mysterious as he may be, Malachi is indeed the last prophet of the Old Testament. So Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last prophet whom God speaks to before Israel goes into 400 years of silence. So if you take your Bibles, if you have a Bible like mine, if you take your Bibles and if you turn, this white page right here represents 400 years of silence. That God was not speaking to any prophets for 400 years. There was no new added revelation given. And Malachi is the last one whom God is going to speak to concerning the nation of Israel. The prophecy of Malachi will be the last words Israel and everyone else for that matter will ever hear from God for 400 years until we go to the New Testament. And who do we hear coming from the wilderness? Who's that prophet that God raises up? John the Baptist. So the next voice that they will hear will be John the Baptist. The last voice that they hear is Malachi. That's the interesting thing about the prophecy of Malachi is these words that are in Malachi are the words that are going to carry Israel over for 400 years. These are the words that they are to remember. These are the last things that they're going to hear from God for 400 years. That's that's the interesting thing about the prophecy of Malachi. Now, whom the book of Malachi is written to is a group of post-exilic Jews. So whom the book of Malachi is written to, who it is intended for, is a group of post-exilic Jews. Meaning Malachi is speaking to to a group of Jews who were in captivity and oppression in Babylon for a number of years. 
If you remember reading um, Ezra and Nehemiah, the king of Persia, Cyrus, allows a group of Jews to come out of exile in Babylon and return to their homeland, Israel. So Israel was in captivity in Babylon. Uh, Persia comes along and they take over Babylon and they allow these Jews to come back to their home. Israel at this point in history is part of the the Persian Empire, the vast Persian Empire. Yet with the blessings from the king of Persia, they are allowed to go back to their homeland and regain a, a bit of their identity. To regain a little bit of what it means to be an Israelite. At this point in history, and mind you guys, this is all leading up to the prophecy of Malachi, okay? At this point in history, Israel is viewed as an insignificant place. They are mocked and, and are constantly are threatened by their neighbors, uh, namely Edom. However, if you can imagine, and if put yourselves in the shoes of an Israelite, if you can imagine... At the time or before the timing of Malachi's prophecy, you are coming out of exile. You've been in captivity for so long. You've been oppressed by the Babylonians. But now you are coming out of exile and you are going back to your homeland. There must have been some sort of excitement and anticipation that must have filled the hearts and minds of these Israelites. Right. These Israelites are excited about something. They anticipate something. And the reason why the reason why these Israelites were excited and the reason why they anticipated something to happen is, yes, for one, going back to their homeland is exciting. Getting kicked out of your place to come back. That's an exciting thing. But also for so long, when they were when they were in captivity in Babylon, they were hearing from the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah of this restoration of Israel that's going to take place. So while they're in Babylon, they're hearing from Isaiah, they're hearing from Ezekiel that one day God is going to take his people, bring them out of exile and restore the land of Israel to what it once was. That's that's their feeling as they as they come back to their homeland, that God is going to do something special. God is going to do something miraculous. God was going to restore the land of Israel to what it once was. So the people come out of exile and they begin to make their best attempt in regaining the glory of old Israel. Uh, they rebuild that centerpiece that made Israel unique, which was their temple. Uh, the priesthood was reestablished. The people are offering up sacrifices on a daily basis. They are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. So from the outside looking in, it seems like nothing is wrong, doesn't it? These Israelites are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They built the temple. They, they reinstituted the priesthood. They are offering up sacrifices. They are not caught up in adultery. They're worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. In Israel's eyes, all the externals have been checked off. They're thinking, we are doing our part. God is not doing his part. As we come to as we come to the book of Malachi, it's been 70 years since Israel has been removed from exile. Yet the glory of old Israel and what they anticipated is not coming to reality. They, they came out of exile and they come back to their homeland. They do all the things that they're supposed to be doing. Yet God is not showing up. 
The promises of God, the things that he promised us from Ezekiel and Isaiah are not coming to pass. And, th- and, that's, and that's what you have to understand when we are going through this book of Malachi. The adi- that's the attitude of these Jews. That's the attitude of these Israelites that you must get. The people haven't just arrived in Israel. They've been there for about 70 years, 70 plus years. And they've been waiting for 70 plus years for God to show up. And God hasn't shown up. It's been 70 years, and, and that 70 years has allowed their, their anger to stew a little bit. And as the prophecy of Malachi, as we come to the prophecy of Malachi, Israel's anger towards God has, has reached its boiling point. They are completely fed up, and they are done with God. These Israelites anticipated certain things to come and certain promises to be fulfilled. And when God had them wait, their respect and view for God turned cold and turned dull. You might say, well, it seems like Israel is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why is God having these Israelites wait for so long? They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. The problem with the book of Malachi is not God. The problem in the book of Malachi is the people. They think that they're they think that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. However, what they are doing, they are doing it half-heartedly. What do I mean by that is they have dead religion. There, there, is, there, is no, there is no life, there is no pulse beat in their religion. You can say that they are lukewarm. They think that they are doing good by bringing by reinstituting the priesthood, however, the priesthood is corrupt. They think that they are doing good by reinstituting the sacrifices. However, the sacrifices that they bring to God are blind and lame and they are sick. They're not pure and holy. They think that they are doing good. However, in the sight of God, they are not. They are not. And as we move to the book of Malachi, I want you to imagine that you are in a courtroom. Just like in the book of Jonah. Remember when you imagined that you were in a belly of a fish for in chapter 2? And God was taking uh, Jonah to school, so to speak. Well, in the book of Malachi, I want you to imagine that you are in a courtroom. And God is bringing his people into the courtroom. And he's going to present and make charges and accusations against Israel. Israel wants to make accusations to God. But God says, I'm going to make accusations against you. And his opening words of prosecution are this. I have loved you. I have loved you. Let's stand. The book of Malachi, chapter 1. The book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, says this. The oracle of the Lord, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. When we say the oracle of the word of the Lord, that means the burden the burden of the word of the Lord. This, this message that, that the Lord is going to give to Malachi, that's going to give to, to Israel, it's a burden to the Lord. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down 
and it will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You may be seated. This morning, I have three points I would like for you to consider as we move through these five verses in the book of Malachi. The first point is, God proclaims his love for us. The first point is, God proclaims his love for us. The second point, God demonstrates his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us. And the third point, God will establish our love for him. The first three points of these first five verses are God proclaims his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us. And God will establish our love for him. Let's look at the first point. God proclaims his love for us. The first point, God proclaims his love for us. <clears throat> we all love, we all love a love story, do, do we not? We all love those good, those good love stories that remind us of our spouse, that remind us of those days when we were in love. However, some of the saddest stories that we will ever read and watch are love stories. Some of the saddest stories that we ever will read, that we ever will watch, are those love stories, and hear me when I say this, is when one person is showing his lover all the tokens of his love, and his love is not being returned in kind. Isn't that sad? And you might have, you might have experienced that, and you might even have been there. You might, even, you might know of a friend who's been there, or a cousin, or whoever has been there. But doesn't it break our heart when we see that one person demonstrating how much he loves and cares for his lover, and his lover is not returning that love in the same way? It, it breaks our hearts. In fact, his lover doesn't even care. And looks past all the tokens of love that is being shown to her. Friends, that is a summary of the relationship between God and Israel. That is a good summary of the relationship, of the love relationship between God and Israel. The story of God and his relationship with Israel doesn't end in happily ever after. That They don't go off into the sunset and, and both live in perfect harmony and unity. Israel, uh, though they have their moments of faithfulness, they are primarily a people who are unfaithful to God. A people who are rebellious and self-centered. A people who at times worship false gods and worship false, false idols. A people at times who forget about the, the covenant that they have made with God. A people at times who forget that they are in a relationship, a covenant relationship, a covenant bond with the God, the one true God, Yahweh. Amen. But in spite of a dark history, in spite of a bad relationship, in spite of a marriage that's been filled with lying, that's been filled with idolatry, but the filled with adultery as well. Here we see in the book of Malachi, at the very end of Israel's history, God is still proclaiming his love for Israel. In, in, spite of, in spite of a marriage that hasn't lived up to what it was supposed to be, in spite of everything that Israel has put God through, God is still proclaiming at the very end, I have loved you. 
God is still proclaiming his love to Israel. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. This also can be rendered this way. I love you, says the Lord. When God says, I have loved you, he's not saying that I used to love you. Or he's not saying that I remember those times when I loved you. God is saying, I love you now. I loved you then and I loved you now. I love you in the present, in the present tense. I love you. You would think, after years of unfaithfulness, after years of self-saterness, after years of, of, not, of Israel not worshiping God the way, the way they ought to, God's last words should be this. That's it, I'm done with you people. That's what he should say, right? That the way you've treated me is unfair. I have loved you, but you have not loved me the way that I have loved you. I am, I am cutting you off, Israel. I've been faithful to you, but you haven't been faithful to me. That's what God should have said, right? How do we know that? Because that's what you would have said. You would have said, I, I am done with this relationship, right? However, God is not like us. God should have said, and he would have been perfectly just in saying, I don't love you anymore. But God doesn't go through moments of phases in his love. God's love is perfect. God's love is unchanging. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit. What God says here in these opening verses of Malachi, before God rebukes Israel, and mind you, chapters 2 and 3 and 4, yes, they're filled with a promise, but they are uh, largely a rebuke to Israel. So before he goes off and just completely takes out his sword and jacks Israel up, he reminds them of the love that he has for them. Before God rebukes Israel in their ways, he first approaches them with a kiss. I have loved you. He opens up his prosecution with tenderness and and fatherly affection. I have loved you. He shows them the error of his way of their ways by by first declaring to them his love for them. I have loved you. We we can't look past that. That's something that we need to take into consideration. When you are dealing with your when when you are dealing with your kids, when you are talking to your mother or your father, the first thing that should come in your mouth is now before we start this conversation, I want you to know that I have lo- I love you. I have some things I need to, that I need to tell you, but before I tell you, I need, to, I need to announce my love for you. That's how we should handle situations. As tender as that is, I have loved you. I love you. As tender as those words are, it should be enough to melt the hard hearts of these Israelites. That, that should be enough. That should be enough to stop them at their tracks. When they hear, when they heard God's announcement of love for them, they should, that should be enough to silence all of their complaining. They should say, wow, God, you love me? You actually love me? They should be overwhelmed by the thought of God loving them. But, of course, that wasn't the case. And like many in our day, why wasn't the case? Why wasn't it the case? Because, like Israel, many in our day have a wrong theology proper. What do I mean by that is they have a wrong doctrine of who God is. They have a wrong view of who God is. 
usually, and they had a wrong view of the love of God and who and how God loves. Friends, when one asks, who is God? What is the common response? What is the what is usually their description of who God is? What is the one thing that you're going to hear all the time? Ninety nine percent of the time you you are going to hear this. God is love. That's what you're going to hear. God is love. When people think about love, they think of when they think about God, they think of love. When they think of love, they think of God. When we think of the love of God, we read verses such as first John four, eight, which says God is love. We read verses such as John three sixteen, which says for God so loved the world. And we build a theology of God's love, which says this God loves everyone. That's all we need. All we need is those two verses. God loves everyone. That's how we build our theology of the doctrine of the love of God. Some would say that in order for God to be God, he must love everyone. People can't imagine a God who doesn't love everyone. They can't. Their conception of God, the prerequisite for you to be God is you have to love everyone. That's what many think in our day. Others would even say that the reason why God loves is because he needs love in return. That's the dominant view of the love of God in Christianity yet. That doesn't mean that it's right. Those friends, those conceptions, those concepts, those ideas of God's love are false and unbiblical. I'll deal with the thought of God loving everyone in the next point. But to say that God loves because he wants love back, to say that God loves because he wants love in return, is to say that God is dependent upon his creation in order to be God, in order to love. So God, in order for God to love, you first must love him. Or God, in order for him to even love anything, the, the reason why God loves is because he needs your love so much in return. He expects your love in return. Friends, if I can say this in bold, italic, underlined letters, God doesn't need our love. I, 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 we're, you're in a Baptist church. God doesn't need our love. And Amen. God doesn't need our God doesn't need us. In fact, God doesn't need anything from us. Listen to the words of our confession. Chapter two, paragraph two. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Let's just we can stop there in himself. God has all glory, all goodness and all blessedness. God is blessed eternal. Is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not not standing. Here's what we need to take in consideration. Not standing in need of any creature which he had made. Not deriving any glory from them. God doesn't get any glory from you. He has all glory within himself. But only manifesting his own glory in, by, and unto, and upon them. The reason why you the reason why you give glory to God is because God has give, is manifesting his glory onto you, and thereby you give glory to him. So the glory that you give him, the love that you give him is the glory that he already has in and himself. That's what I mean. That's what the our confession is saying. But what but also what our confession is saying is this. God is perfectly fine in and of himself. That's what our confession is saying, that, that God is good. God is good. 
God did not create creatures because he wanted or needed something from them. Creatures don't add anything to God, nor do creatures take away anything from God. God doesn't need love because he's lonely. He doesn't need, you don't, God doesn't need to love because he needs love in return. God is blessed eternal within himself. God loves because he chooses to love and desires his creation to experience the fullness of what love is. What is the fullness of what love is? The fullness of what love is is found in Jesus Christ. That's what the fullness of, of the love is, of love is. Now, Israel might be saying, upon hearing, I have loved you, they might be saying, you love me, God, big deal, you're supposed to love me. How, how, how is that special? You're supposed to love me. Friends, the love of God can't be demanded. We, we can't demand God to love every single person. We can't demand love from God. God doesn't have to love because he's God. God loves freely. The doctrine of the love of God, though simple as it may sound, it's something mysterious that we fully can't wrap our, our minds around. When we think of mysterious doctrines, we often think of the Trinity. We often think of the hypostatic union. We often think of the simplicity of God or the, the impassibility of God. I would, I would add the love of God is, is on par to those as well. We can't, we can't comprehend that type of love. An infinite holy being loving sinful creatures. We can't understand that. And nor do I, do I honestly want to. I think, if I, I think if I fully understood that, it would be too much for me. It'd be way too much. That's why God reveals himself in certain parts. Friends, anytime the Bible speaks of God loving anything, we we must immediately take notice. We we must, our our eyes must immediately take notice of that. We must highlight that, underline that, whatever you do with your Bibles. And also, when you take notice of that, don't focus on the object of God's love. Don't focus on the person whom God is loving Focus on where that love is actually coming from. We often think, we often, oftentimes, we often say that, oh man, God loved this person, God loved this person. And we, we say, when we think about the person, and, and, and we think about the person, we think that that person might have been something special, might have done something good. Friends, think about where that love is actually coming from first. That love is coming from an infinite, holy, self-sufficient God whose name is I am, who, who loves not because he needs love in return, whose love is perfect and unchanging. The fact that that God would choose to love and would choose to love and set his perfect love on anyone is indeed a mystery, is indeed a mystery. Friends, l- let me do something. You, our love is not like God's love. God's love is perfect and unchanging. There are things that my mother can do to me that can cause me to love her more. There's also things that she can do to me that can cause my love to diminish from her. That doesn't happen with God. God's love doesn't go through emotional changes. God's love is consistent within himself. God's love is perfect and unchanging. God's love reflects his being and character. That's why our confession, when we, if you ever read our confession, it says that God is most holy, most wise, most loving. That word most also means perfect. Amen. He's the highest expression of it. Mm-hmm. This is the first point of Malachi that we can't miss. Let, let us not pass by this opening statement by God without contemplating the world of theology that it all details. I have loved you. Yeah. We can stop there. We can stop there and say, case closed. We can, actually, we can actually stop there, go home, and come back and redo this sermon all over again. And still, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be profoundly complexed 
about the love of God. Beloved, when was the last time you contemplated God loves you? When was the last time you actually considered those words that God loves you? We hear it every Sunday and Wednesday, and it might become cliche for some of us. Oh, yeah, God loves me. The first things that, that you're taught in evangelism is to say this, God loves you. But have you ever really considered the type of love that is being set upon you? Oh, yeah, God loved me. But God loves me, but, but we have to really think about the type of love that is being given to us. Friends, we can get caught up in various theological studies, various doctrines of the faith, which isn't bad. However, never lose sight of the world of theology in the love of God. Amen. Let me give you something to ponder. Gerhardus Voss said this, The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that it never began. The best proof... Of that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. What, what, what does that mean? What does is, what is Grahadas meaning mean? You know when we say God loves you before the foundation of the world? We have to say things like that. But technically speaking, God is, God is outside of time, right? So when we think about God loving us before the foundation of the world... That's not really a proper statement to say. However, we have to say that because we can't comprehend a time when God loved us before time. Because God is outside of time. The best proof, if you want to know, if you think that God will one day stop loving you, well, think again. Because he never started to love you. That's the point. For many of us, our church and our, and our relationship with God can become old and stagnant. We can get tired with, we can get tired with, with this, right? Sometimes we can. That's just the reality of it. Friends, in those times, I encourage you to, 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 just to stop and think about the love of God. When you're feeling tired and weak and when, when, when religion is starting to feel old and, and church is, is starting to become just routine to you, for you, think about the love of God. Amen. Don't lose sight of who it is that says, I love you. Amen. The creator of all, the, the one who, who, who declares the end from the beginning, God Almighty, the great I am, says, I love you. Amen. Those opening tender yet powerful words by God should be enough to cool Israel's cold hearts toward God. That should be enough, right? We should close the court court doors right now and say, let's all go home. That's not the case. Instead, it only fueled their fire, which leads to our second point. God displays his love for us. The second point, God displays his love for us. Uh, God has announced his love for Israel, which should cause them to drop to their knees in repentance. Yet they respond with anger and bitterness. If you were mad at God, this would be your response as well. Don't think so highly of yourself when you read this response. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? But you say, how have you loved us? God tells Israel, I love you. Israel tells God, where have you loved us? And and what type of ways have you displayed your love for us? 
You don't love us, God. I, I mean, think about what you just said. You don't really love us. Look at who we are. Our nation is an insignificant place. Persia rules over us. We have no king to lead us. Our temple has no glory. Our enemies mock us daily. And you have the audacity to say that you love us. Lord, open your eyes and look what's going on to us. Look what's going on with us. You've, you've promised us things. We are anticipating certain things to happen. We heard the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah. We remember those. We hung on to those words, God. If you love us, why do you have us wait for so long? Why haven't you shown up? We are doing everything that we are supposed to be doing. It's almost as if Israel is saying, Lord, you love us. What have you done for us lately? We can be that way. It's almost as if Israel is saying, Lord, what have you done for us lately? The words of Isaiah chapter 59, verses 9 through 11, seem to reflect Israel's situation and attitude. I'm going to read them to you. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. Before the world, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. That is the attitude. And that, that sort of summarizes the Israel's situation. God, you don't love us. You don't mean what you, what you say when you say you love us. Israel, and if you, if you can see here, there's, there's a bit of a blame shifting here, right? That Israel's not taking into account their own faults, but rather they are blaming God for what's happening to the nation. You love us? In what ways have you loved us? It's all, and, this, and when they say, and when they say, how have you loved us? There's a dual meaning in there. The first meaning is, <laughs> you don't love us. But the second is, okay, you say you love us, prove it. Prove it. You say that you love us. You're the, you're, you are the one true God, Yahweh, and you're telling me that you love me. Okay, well, prove it. Israel is issuing a challenge to God. We can also, too, issue challenges to God. They want to know, how, how, how has God loved them? And you would think, upon hearing their response to God, you would think about, about God hearing their response, upon hearing their response, you would think God would say, I don't got to prove anything to you. I've, I've been proving my love to you. You would think that after everything Israel has been, has been putting God through, after all their unfaithfulness, upon them hearing saying, prove it to us, God, prove to us your love, you would, say, you would think that God would say, I'm done, that's it. Close it, John the Baptist, let's do this. Let's do this. You would think that he would say that, right? However, this is, this is another expression. This is another display of God's love. He says, okay, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. And he points out two realities to prove his, his, his love to Israel. First, he focuses in on their election. And second, he focuses in on how he's destroying their enemies. 
How has God loved Israel? First, by choosing them, and second, by destroying their enemies. So let's look at how God first displays his love for them. And he does so by choosing them. God displays his love for Israel, and he does so by choosing them. Verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, we have to st- you have to stick with me here and understand the, the argument here. The way God is going to frame his first argument on how he loves Israel is he's going to point them back to two brothers. He's going to point them back to two individuals, Jacob and Esau, and his choosing to love and sovereign election. In verse 2, look at verse 2, God proposes a question to Israel. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Class, Israel, of course, that's a no-brainer. Um, Esau is Jacob's brother. Jacob is Esau's brother. And, and God, that's basic. God expects them to say yes to that question, right? But what God is doing is he is spotlighting these two brothers' birthrights. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? He names Esau first because Esau was the firstborn, right? Esau and it was common custom of the day that the firstborn were the, one, were the ones that would inherit the blessings. So Esau, because he was the firstborn, was the, was the one whom the blessings and the love of God should have gone to first. They should have been to Esau, right? However, God doesn't play by our earthly custom rules. God doesn't play by our, our finite rules, our man-made traditions. God plays by his own rules, and he, and he chooses to love the younger brother, Esau. God looks past, or Jacob, God looks past Esau, and he sets his love upon Jacob. Now, you have to understand this here. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 35, is renamed Israel. So all Israelites are descendants of Jacob, the one whom God chose to love first. The point is this. God is saying, how have I loved you? I chose you rather than Esau. My blessings and love should have been only toward Esau. They should have only been intended to the firstborn. But I chose to love Jacob. It wasn't that Jacob was going to be a better person out of the two brothers. Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter. And for the, for, and for a majority of his life, he lives up to his name. God God didn't look down the the telescope of time and see and look at these two brothers' life and saw that that Jacob was going to be more moral or more religious or more righteous than, than Esau. It didn't happen that way. The point is this. God took one who was undeserving and placed his love upon them. God took one who was who wasn't worthy of his love. And he set, he placed his love upon him. Israel, how have I loved you? How have I loved you? You have the audacity to tell me how have I loved you? I've loved you before your conception. And I made it known by choosing you. I made it known in time by giving you a land and coming into covenant with you. And you tell me to you want me to prove to you how have I loved you? Look at your status. Look at look at who look at who look at who who you who you who the federal or the, the head of your lineage is, Jacob. 
I, have, I chose to love Jacob rather than Esau. However, the problem with Israel is that they thought that they were worthy of God choosing them. That election in, Israel, in Israel's eyes wasn't, wasn't something that they were grateful for. But it's something that they boasted in. And if you, and if you read the New Testament, you see that when, God is, when Christ is dealing with the Pharisees, the Pharisees can continually come back to Christ and say that our father is Abraham. They, they point back to their election as if their election is something that they can boast in. Rather, election means something that drives us to our knees in worshiping God. Israel thought that they were lovely in the sight of the Lord. They thought that there was something in them that drew God's love towards them. We could think that way as well. Jacob wasn't anything special in God's eyes. There was nothing in Jacob that could have drawn out God's love. Jacob was equally undeserving as Esau. Yes, Esau was the firstborn, but mind you, Esau wasn't deserving either. Both were undeserving. Yet yet God sets his love upon one rather than the other. Friends, we can be this way. We can think the reason why God chose us is because what he saw in us. Friends, we are sinners. We are sinners. We don't deserve God's perfect love. We aren't worthy of such unchanging love. Yet God chooses to love that which is unloving and that which is unworthy. God doesn't, God doesn't choose to love sinners based off of foresight. God chooses to love sinners based off his goodwill and pleasure. And my friends, why he does so, I don't know. But, th- but that's how he loves. That's the profound mystery of election. Now, you've been hearing me say this word mystery a lot, right? The love of God is a mystery. An election is a mystery. Friends, mystery is not bad. We, we, when we think about mystery, we think about something that's, that's bad and something that we, that, that we will never grasp. Yes, you'll never grasp it. The love of God is something that can't be grasped. The, 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 the election of how God, the, the election of God and, 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 and his sovereign love and choosing a people for his own namesake is something that we will never grasp. In other words, you can touch the doctrine of election. You can touch the doctrine of love. You can't fully grasp it. You can't fully wrap your minds around it. Mind you, mystery is not something that we throw up our hands and, and we give up. No, mystery is something that we worship God in light of. Mystery is something that we adore and worship and praise God in light of because it shows to us the infinite mind of God. It shows us where we are and and where God is. That's mystery. That's the profound mystery of election. Again, that before the foundation of the world, that God would set his love upon wicked sinners like you and I. Friends, the basis of election is not on human will or exertion. The basis of election is the grace of God. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Israel, how have I loved you? I chose you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, and I call you my treasured possession. Mind you, Deuteronomy 7 is written after those wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 7 is written after, after those 40 years of grumbling when, when those Israelites want to go back to Egypt. Yet God calls them a treasured possession. It's not, and, and this is what we have to consider. It's, and it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
Friends, Israel was the fewest out of all peoples. You were the fewest out of all peoples that God could have chosen. You were the last on the list. But it is because the Lord loves you. What's the explanation? It's because the Lord loves you. No explanation. Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's covenant faithfulness. I'm keeping my end of the bargain. Israel, you're not. I'm keeping my oath to what I swore to your fathers, but you are not. That the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How have I loved you? I could have left you in Egypt. I could have left you in Pharaoh's hands, but now you, but, but no, I have, I have, I have stretched out my arms and I have pulled you out of Egypt. And I, am, and I am taking you into a land that's filled with milk and honey. How have I loved you? Stop considering, stop looking at your present situation and look at the whole picture. Israel, I've been loving you. I've loved you before your birth. In time, I showed you, I demonstrated my love for you by choosing you, by setting my love upon you in a covenant relationship that I have not broken. And so many times... Have I wanted to look at you in delight? But in so many times, I have looked at you with disgust. You have turned your back on me so many times, yet I have not turned my back on you. Israel, how have I loved you? I loved you by choosing you. Again, the love, the God's love for Israel had nothing to do with them, but had everything to do with the goodwill and pleasure of God in choosing them. Friends, God's love for you has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with God. Amen. What we also see in the election of Jacob, what we also see in the election of Jacob is God is demonstrating the freeness of his love. Like I said, God's love can't be demanded. God's love is free. God's love is merciful. Again, the popular view of the love of God is this. God loves everybody. God has to love everybody. Friends, that's not the case. God, God loves whom he chooses to love. Mind you, you don't love everybody. So why, so, so why do you equate, why, why, why does God have to love everybody, but you don't have to love everybody? God's love is free. God's love can't be demanded. God doesn't need to love everyone in the same particular manner. Mind you, if God loved everybody in that same salvific particular manner, then everybody would be in heaven. If God loved everybody the same way. Now, the common objection to that would be this. That's not fair. That's not fair. And I would say, you're right. That is not fair. Election is not fair. God setting his love upon a particular people is not fair. However, it's not the way you see it. God, God, it's not, it's... Think about this. It's not fair to God that he would choose to love undeserving people. That, that's, what not, that's what's not fair. It's not fair to God that he would choose to love undeserving people because fairness would be for God not to love anybody. That's fairness. Friends, when we speak about election and whether or not it's fair, we often view election through the lens of the creatures. If God only loves some and not others, if God doesn't love everybody, then that's not fair to us. That doesn't benefit us very well. 
That doesn't pan out for us very well. God has to love everyone. Friends, I would suggest for us to look at election through the lens of God. It's not fair to God that he chooses to set his love upon sinners. It's not fair to God that he sets his perfect, unchanging love upon sinners, mind you, who will never love him in the same way. You can love your spouse the same way she loves you, or you can get close to it. You can love your family or friends the same way they love you, or you can get close to it. Friends, you will never match the love of God. You will never match that unchanging, perfect love that God has for you. But God, but God chooses to set his love upon people who will not love him that way. God chooses to do so. The question is not, why doesn't God love everybody? The question is, why does God love anybody? We get so caught up in God hating Esau, we tend to miss the world of theology that comes before it. Jacob, I have loved. We, we get so caught up in, man, what about Esau? We miss the world of theology that comes before it. I have loved Jacob. Don't focus on who God, hate, who God hates. Focus on who God loves. That's what we should really consider. Brothers and sisters of the faith, you want, to know, you want to know if God loves you? If you want to know the signpost that God hangs out that demonstrates his love for you, consider your election. Consider your election. That's, that's the billboard that God hangs out in, in his demonstration and how he's loved you. I have loved you with an electing love. You could very well be Esau. You, you could very well be Esau. You could very well be your unbelieving brother, your unbelieving sister, your unbelieving friend, family member. You could very well be them. You can very well be those people who, repent, who refuse to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. That could be you. You could very well not have been loved by God. God didn't owe his love to Jacob. God doesn't owe his love to you. We are sinners who deserve the wrath and judgment of God, yet God chose to set his love upon you. Ephesians 2 sums this up well. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and this is something that I, I will never wrap my, head, my mind around, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. What the freeness of the love of God in election shows us is God is going to build his kingdom, not on human will, not on human works, not on human exertion, but solely on his grace. That's how God builds his kingdom. Solely on his grace and mercy. And what we have, what will will happen when we get to heaven is when we ask all of each other, when when I ask Tony, Tony, how'd you get here? And Tony asks Anthony, how'd you get here, Anthony? We're all going to have the same answer. By the grace of God. I don't know, but by the grace of God. Let's look at the second way God displays his love for us, and he does so by by destroying our enemies. So God God displays his love for us by choosing us, and then he displays his love for us by by destroying our enemies. Again, verse 2, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God has shown his love for Israel by choosing Jacob rather than than Esau. And to advance his argument of election further, he spotlights now Esau. So first he showed, he spotlighted Jacob. Now he's going to spotlight Esau and all of Esau's descendants, Edom. Just as if you were an Israelite, you, you find your lineage, your lineage roots, it's found in Jacob. If you were an Edomite, your lineage finds its roots in Esau. Right? So Israel, you find your roots in Jacob, but if you are from Edom, the very person, the very place that God is talking about here, you find your roots to Esau. Now God is going to say, okay, have you considered my love for you in choosing you and choosing Jacob rather than Esau? Why don't you consider what's happening to Esau now? Why don't you consider what's happening to Edom? You think you're so, you think you have it so bad, Israel? Look at the flip side. Look at, look at, look at the nation. Look at the people whom I hate. Edom, uh, historically, Edom and Israel were practically neighbors. They were right next to each other. Um, however, these two people groups did not get along. The people of Edom, for the most part of Israel's history, were Israel's most vicious and persistent enemy. Uh, we might have think, and we, we don't know much about Edom, we don't hear much about Edom, because Edom wasn't necessarily a world power. But Edom was the most persistent and violent group toward Israel. Edom had a deep hatred for Israel. Uh, during the wilderness wanderings, Edom didn't allow Israel to pass through their homeland. They refused to give them water, they refused to give them shelter, refused to give them food. Edom also forged alliances with nations who wanted to invade Israel. So Edom had a long history of being the most persistent and violent enemy of Israel. Edom wants Israel to be demolished and wiped off the face of the map. And Israel at times have cried out to the Lord to take this affliction of Edom away. Assyrians come and go. Babylonians come and go. Persians come and soon will go. But yet Edom always seems to just be there. They just always seem to be in the mix just messing with us. Edom is that force that constantly is attacking Israel and keeping her from the covenant land. They they, they constantly are spoiling Israel's free enjoyment of God's covenant land. They think that that they they, they are going on the right path, and then here comes Edom, messing it all up. Israel, Israel might be thinking at this point, God, you don't love us. Because as long as Edom is around, we will never fully enjoy the fullness of your covenant blessings. As long as this enemy is here, how are we we ever going to enjoy the land that you have given us? That's what they might be thinking. How can you love us when this great enemy of Israel seems to just never go away? And God here in these verses ensure Israel that Edom's days are numbered. That Edom's days are numbered. Look at, look at, look at verse three. 
but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What God is saying is Edom is a waste bucket. What God is saying, consider the heritage of Edom. They're jackals in the desert. Consider your heritage. And then consider Edom's. What's happening to Edom? Look at verse 4. If Edom says, we are, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom gets knocked down, but says, it's okay. First you don't succeed, you try again. You know, you get, you get knocked down, you get back up. That might be right, but not in Edom's case. They, they, they say that we will get back up and we will rebuild our nation. We will overcome our, our national calamity. We will reestablish our political identity. And the Lord says, no, you're not. You ain't doing none of that. Not, not on my watch. You, you will not rebuild your ruins. You, you will not rebuild your city as long as I'm around. They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom will be destroyed. Edom will be labeled a wicked country. The destruction of Edom also points us back to God's main argument. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. It's all coming full circle. What does it mean for God to hate Esau? It means that God hates Esau and every single descendant that comes from Esau. And he and and in the fullness of time, he is going to wipe Esau's lineage off the map. That's what that means. You might say that's not fair. Mind you, that's righteous. That's just that's justice. That's what that's what that is. That's holy judgment. That's holy justice from God. That's what God should have done to Israel. That's what God should do to all of us. He should wipe us off the face of the map. The minute we start breathing, when we come out of our mother's womb, yet he doesn't. God's hate for Esau manifests itself in the total destruction of Edom. What God is saying is this. How have I loved you? Open your eyes. If you look a little bit beyond your nose, look at your neighbors, look at your cousins, and see what's happening to them. Edom is falling. Edom is falling. Mind you, at this particular time, too, Persia is falling as well. The Greeks are starting to plan and invade Persia. I'm taking care of, I'm taking care of Persia, and I'm taking care of Edom. And yes, Edom says that they will rise to a better day, but the Lord will not let them see that day come to pass. What is the proof of God's love for Israel? He's overcoming Israel's enemies, and in overcoming Israel's enemies, he's demolishing his love for her. Now, you might say, okay, big deal. God is taking care of Edom. God is taking care of Israel's uh, worst enemy. Big deal. What does that have to do with me? Brothers and sisters, it has everything to do with you. Has God, question, I have a question. Has God demonstrated his love for us by overcoming our enemies? God took care of Edom for Israel, but is God taking care of our enemies? Indeed, he has. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Saints, how, how has God overcome our enemies? By sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of human flesh to be the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God. That's how, that's how God demonstrates 
his love for you by destroying your enemies, by sending Jesus Christ to destroy them on your behalf. In his life, Jesus obeyed the law on our behalf, thereby releasing us from its curse and judgment. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As for it was written, curse is everyone who is hung, who is hanged from a tree. Friends, when you are in your uh, sinful state, the law was not your best friend. The law can only bring judgment to you. The, the law reminded you of how unworthy you are, of, unhow, of how sinful you are. That's what the law was. The law was a curse for us. The law was our enemy. But because, because we could never obey it perfectly, but because of Christ's act of obedience, he now frees us from trying to obey the law in order to be justified before a holy God. Only in Christ's and his perfect obedience to the law are we justified before a holy God. Now the law is no longer our taskmaster, but the law is a delight to our souls. The law is no longer handcuffs. The law gives us wings to fly. Christ in his death on the cross defeated our greatest enemy, sin. Christ in his, uh, in, his uh, in his death on the cross defeated our greatest enemy, sin. On the cross, our sins are imputed to Christ, meaning on the cross, Christ takes the place of his elect by paying the penalty of their sins. That's what that means. On the cross, the worst about me laid upon Christ. My wicked sin was imputed to the one who knew no sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is this. On the cross, the worst about me laid upon Christ. The best about me, the best about him laid upon me. So when Christ sees, when God sees me, he doesn't see sinful Isaiah. He sees, he sees Christ. He sees, he sees his son. My, my dirty laundry is, was hidden in Christ, and he gave me his righteous robe. That's what that means. Amen. That's double imputation. Amen. That's a mystery that I can't understand. That, mind you, I don't want to understand. Yes. Yes. That's profound. That's beyond me. Yes. That's what that means. Christ on the cross defeats the greatest enemy of his people. He took the sins of his people, and he nailed them to a cross. He took each and every one of his elect, and he, and he said, you are now free from the slave market of sin. Amen. Yes. That's what Christ did. Amen. And lastly, in his resurrection, in the resurrection of Christ, Christ on our behalf delivers a death blow to our final enemy. Death. Death. Friends, one day we all will die. It's common. All of us will die, Right? But what the good news of the gospel tells us is that everyone who places their faith in Christ will die, but the grave will not be their home forever. I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you've truly thought about that. It was often, it's actually often been said that, that the, the fuel, the fuel that, that ignited Paul's theology was this theme of resurrection. Resurrection. The gospel tells us that, that yes, everyone who places their, places their faith in Christ will die, but one day will rise bodily from the grave. So what we have on the cross is, yes, Jesus Christ is taking care of our soul, and what we have in the resurrection, he's taking care of our bodies. So the, the whole of our humanity is being taken care of in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. 
That's what that means. Christ takes care of your sin problem. And yes, also, Christ is going to take care of your sinful suit, your sinful body. Because you will one day be resurrected bodily from the grave. Now, that's not spooky. That's biblical. That's truth. That's what's going to happen. Why do we know that's going to happen? Because it already happened in Jesus Christ. That's how we know. That's, that's our hope for justification. How do we know that we are justified? Because Christ was justified. How was Christ justified? He was justified before the world when the Father raised his Son back to life. That's how we know we are justified before a holy God, because of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Christ details all of that. Christ rose from the dead, becoming the first fruit of a royal harvest of life. Because of, Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, yes, we do not look forward to death. I know that. I understand all that. However, in the same breath, we mock death. Death is painful, but, but in the same breath, we look at death and we laugh. We say, we say, with the, we recite the words of the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have, you have victory, not in a Joel Osteen way, but in a biblical way. You have victory in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, all of the blessings of the triune God are given to you. Praise be to God. Saints of the faith, has God destroyed your enemies? Indeed, he has. And the proof of that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do we do now? We learn, we know about this great love. We learned about the electing love of God. We learned that, that at this, at the current time, He is overcoming our enemies and He has overcome our enemies. What do we do in, in light of all of that information? We consider our last point. God will establish our love for Him. God will establish our love for Him. Verse five. Look at verse five. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In light of all the truth that we have just learned, what do we do with it? It's not just for head knowledge. It's for us to, it's for our knees to, to, to come right down before the face of God and worship him and praise him and give him all glory and honor. The same people who said, how have you loved us? Will be the same people who say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Beyond the border of Israel. God's love and the demonstration of it should cause our hearts to burn with adoration and praise to God. Saints, how has God demonstrated his love for us? How is God demonstrating his love for us? Mind you, don't ever take the love of God lightly. Don't, 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 don't take the love of God and, and, think that, and think that he owes it to you. But how has, he, has, how has he demonstrated his love for us? By choosing to love us with, a, with an incomprehensible, unchanging, and perfect love. Listen to the words by John Owen. On whom he fixes his love, it is immutable, unchanging. God's love for you doesn't change. It does not grow to eternity. It is not diminished at any time. It is an eternal love that had no beginning, that shall have no ending, ending. And here's this, that it cannot be heightened by any act of ours that cannot be lessened by anything in us. And what do we say to that? What does John Owen say to such rich theology, such profound theology? I say it it itself, it is thus. 
I can give you a description. I can lay you out a theological description of the love of God. And at the end, I can say, but that's what it is. I don't know. I can't comprehend it. I don't want to comprehend it, but yet I adore it. What Owen is saying is God's love for his own is an eternal love that never had a starting point nor will never have it, will never come to an end. There's nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more, and there's nothing in us that can cause God to love us less. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. Amen. Because I fail every single day. Brothers and sisters of the faith, has, how has God demonstrated his love for us? By electing us before the foundation of the world with a love that is free and gracious. There is nothing in us that could have drawn out God's love. God's love for us is, is free and, and it's based solely on his grace, goodwill, and pleasure. Let us never boast in our election. Let us never say that, oh, we're elect, we can do whatever we want. I love what Ian Hamilton says. If the truth of God's electing love does not bring you to your knees to worship God, then you have never yet begun to understand the electing love of God. Mind you, I would say that for every biblical doctrine. If you, have, if, if you study theology, and if it does not bring you to your knees, then you have yet to understand theology. And lastly, saints, how does God demonstrate his love for us? He does so by sending his son, Jesus Christ, that we will that that and and where we see that love shouted out to sinners is at the cross. Ian Murray once said the cross is the pulpit of God's love. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. The father preaches his love to you from the cross of his son. That's how he demonstrates his love. That's how he he says to the world, to, to sinners who were unworthy of his love. He says, he says, I love you at the cross of his son. Friends, if you've entered the Lord today, unsure of God's love for you, let this sermon be a reminder of the love and the riches that you have in Christ. A lot of this stuff you might already know. And some of the things that we know sometimes can be the most dangerous things because we can take them for granted. Never lose sight of the love that he has for his own and the great lengths that he, that he went in demonstrating that love by sending the eternal one to come in the likeness of human flesh, to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy his holy wrath, his holy, to satisfy his holy wrath and, and thereby by rising from the dead, he will bring many sons to glory. If you are unsaved, I, that's the message that I hope you get from, from this, that this love is be, being extended to you. This great love can be yours in Jesus Christ if you repent of your sins and if you turn to Christ. In closing, what, what else do we say? What do we say to such great love? I think it's proper that we repeat the words of the Apostle Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and, or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.